Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature painter Dominique Chambers. He is from St. Louis, Missouri, and currently lives and works in New Haven, Connecticut. Dom received his BFA from Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design and his MFA from the Yale University School of Art. He creates large, colorful paintings and drawings that reflect his intellectual journeys. He fills words, especially those from brilliant minds, and music have meaning, and both impact his work. Dom has exhibited in both solo and group exhibitions regionally and internationally, and has participated in a few residencies, including the Yale Norfolk Summer Residency and the New York Studio Residency Program in Brooklyn. Additionally, he has curated exhibitions in New York and Milwaukee. Some say his work is founded upon the relationship between reality and fantasy. It is indeed magical, and precisely the reason I was drawn to his paintings and have enjoyed getting to know him. Please welcome Dominique Chambers and enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Dom, thank you so much for your time. I'm excited to interview you today. So welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So why don't we open up by you sharing with us when you first discovered your artistic passion? Oh, um, so that's it's interesting because I think that I always had an aptitude for drawing, you know, and I was always reading comic books and reading graphic novels. And so if my first artistic, you know, endeavors were just, you know, copying characters out of a book that I was reading, you know. But when I became introduced to, the, you know, the art world and what art could really be, you know, as something as an intellectual activity and something that brings people together and, you know, opens up a more complicated and engaging discourse was when I went to community college at um, Florissant Valley in St. Louis. It's in um, Ferguson. And I was there for three years. And um, that's when the whole world of art opened up for me. And I can't ever talk about my experience at Flow Valley without um, talking about the girl who made me go to college in the first place, because I didn't want to go. You know, I, I knew I could draw and I knew I could like paint here and there. But it was never instilled into me as something you should go pursue. And then she was like, yeah, if you don't go to college, we ain't, we ain't dating no more. <laughs> and so I went to Flow Valley. And that's when, you know, my introduction to, like, the art world, you know, first started. And I fell in love with it. And I haven't looked back ever since. So do you remember or recall if there was a particular artist or body of work that influenced you? Um, there wasn't a particular artist, you know, per se. So at Flow Valley, I had just amazing professors. You know, and these professors were giving us like a premier education. Like I was thinking, I was learning about John Cage. I was learning about Charles White. 
I was learning about contemporary artists like Mark Bradford, Rasheed Johnson, Lorna Simpson, you know. And so it was for the first time where I, you know, came to um, understand and see visually like these contemporary artists who were, you know, alive or historical figures and the impacts that they made. And I think it left such an impression on me because they defined or redefined for myself, you know, what was possible and what you were able to achieve, you know, in the world of art. You know, and like that was really, I think like that overall idea is what really stuck with me. And that's what kind of laid down my approach as an artist now. It's like redefining what you're able to do, you know, as a creator, as an artist, you know. But it wasn't a particular piece at all like that stuck with me. Are there concepts that, that connect your work? Certain concepts. Um, hmm. I think a lot of the things I deal with, you know, of course, there's magical realism, which is a um, reoccurring thing for me within my um, endeavors and my pursuits as an artist, the things that I study. Um, the concepts, you know, range from black leisure, but also black intellectualism. But also, you know, there's always this examination of history and the kind of social and political conditions that we all live in. And that's where art for me makes the most sense. You know, like I'm very curious, you know, about what are the conditions that, you know, govern my life, you know, that dictate my experiences, dictate these social and political paradigms that I'm forced to engage within. And so whenever I am setting out to make art objects, I hope that I'm speaking to some of those political or social conditions that are governing our, um, our everyday lives. And what does that mean, you know? And that's something that I find, I find myself feeling very strongly about because that's what I believe artists are meant to do. You know, we go into like, these spaces, into these rooms, and we wrestle with, you know, the world, you know, with these ideas, the, you know, the conditions of our countrymen, what people are dealing with politically, economically. And we have all of these concerns in our spaces, right? Like that's what's in my studio every time I enter the space. And my job is to make sense out of that, you know? So I will say that when I'm creating an artwork, a lot of these ideas can be interconnected between um, each body of work that I begin. And, and, and do you take your audience into consideration? When you're painting, do you think about, you know, what people would feel or think or experience mm -hmm. viewing your work? I do. You know, I do. I do. I take my artists into consideration. Not necessarily, um, I don't necessarily make things I think my audience wants to see, you know, like that's not never a consideration for me. But, you know, because I believe it's my job to show them things that they may not have known they would have been interested in, right? Things that they may not have known that they wanted to see. But I think about, um, you know, for me, art really is an intellectual activity. And so when I'm thinking about my audience, I'm thinking about the kind of message I want to convey to them. And hopefully, you know, and I do think that most audience, you know, or viewers of art, when they engage, you know, with an art object, they are quite competent. They do understand and how to engage with an art object and they bring that rigor with them. And hopefully when I pr produce the works that they're, the rigor that I've presented in my work is something that um, challenges them. You know, it forces them to stay with the work a little bit longer and to examine what it is that they're looking at, you know, and hopefully that can lead to a more engaging, you know, relationship to like my practice and to the different bodies of work and different ideas that I'm invested in. And so it's mostly just inviting my audience in to have a conversation, you know, about what it is that we're all dealing with, you know, and that's what I would like to facilitate with my work. And 
even to take it one step further, I would say that I also want to make things that are really, really impactful. I never want to make works that people can just somehow overlook, you know? And so when I think about my audience, I want them to see that I take this craft very, very seriously. Because I remember being um, at the Carrie James Marshall um, retrospective in Chicago, and I think it was 2016 or 2017. And when you entered that museum at the MCA, you understood that this man took his craft very, very seriously. So not only on a formal level and a technical level, it's insanely proficient, but you understood that his intellectual in investigations were so co complex enough to the point where you were forced to um, be curious, you know, the forced to want to learn more about what it is that you were looking at, you know. And that's the kind of thing I want to bring with my work. You sound passionate when you speak about your work. So I'm curious, what, what kind of pleasure do you derive from creating art? Um, so that, I love that question because it's a number of things for me. I mean, on a more selfish side, I want to let people know that I'm for real, you know, as an artist, as a maker, that I'm someone that's going, going to be around for the next 40 years, you know, because I love this so much. And I love producing things and letting people see, you know, what it is that I'm also interested in, right? Like this is how I introduce myself. When someone goes to an exhibition, whether they go to um, a gallery, a museum, or an art fair, the works I, you know, I put out into the world is me. You know, it's how I introduce myself. And that matters, right? And you want to make sure you're, you know, introducing yourself with a level of skill, a level of proficiency, um, efficiency, dedication, um, complexity, visual richness. And those are things that, you know, stays with people as they engage with these artworks, you know, and that is exciting for me. And I will say I'm also incredibly competitive. And so I love making works in very complicated ways or, you know, very ambitious works with these like grandiose ideas and themes I'm like wrestling with, with the books that I'm reading, but also making something that's technically rich and visually rich because I know the peers and the other artists that I'm, you know, working with at the same time, you know, that are working in their own studios they're not going to let me rest. And I want to make sure I'm, they know I'm not going to let them rest either. And so I'm in my studio definitely, you know, putting my best foot forward every single time because I know that those I respect would do nothing less than that also. You comment that you're competitive. Yeah, 110%. 110%. Like there's no way, there's no reason, there's no point to any of this if you're not. So did that dr drive your decision to apply to Yale to get your MFA? It did, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, I grew up in the northern part of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you know, single mother household, and you know, being the youngest out of seven, you know, eight children, you know, I saw, you know, a lot of economic strife, right? And when you're in the poverty, when you're in the hood, like, not everyone's telling you, hey, the way you're gonna make it out is by pursuing art and education and by reading books, right? And that to me is like really paralyzing for a lot of kids in those environments who have any kind of interest in the arts, right? And so I was fortunate enough to understand that, okay, I was aware of like my own positioning in the world, you know, in the socioeconomic ladder. And that if I had any real chance of doing something meaningful or to allow my work to get the attention I felt like it deserved or for people to hear my opinions or my thoughts or that I had something meaningful to contribute and... I wanted to do this in the field of art, 
in my mind, Yale was the only place that made sense for allowing me to have that platform because I wasn't in New York. I wasn't in L.A. I didn't have the resources a lot of these other artists did have. You know, they gave them a leg up by being in those environments, by being in those cities. And so I made a self-conscious decision to, you know, put myself in a position where, you know, I could come out first. And I think that that is how all artists should operate. You know, life to me is strategic. And if you're going to, you know, do something, do it like you mean it. And so be aware of where you are and be willing to put the work in to get where you want to be. And, you know, don't lie to yourself about it. Like you can't bullshit and say, hey, I am, you know, poor, I'm black, I have no money, I have no resources, my studio's a wreck, but I'm going to be a highly well-respected artist on Tuesday. Well, how? You know, like what are you doing to make that happen, right? Who are you researching? What are you looking at? What are you reading? How often are you engaging with these artworks? And so you have to put yourself in a position where you're going to come out first and the work gets the attention you feel like it deserves. Did you have expectations of what the Yale experience would be like? Not really. You know, I mean, I didn't. I mean, I heard like horror stories from all of my friends. Like everyone that has gone to Yale in some capacity has had some kind of traumatic, traumatic experience there. And I'm like, damn, like what, what is going on in this school? I mean, you know, coming from the background that I did, Yale was the last thing that was going to scare me. You know, it was just a necessary thing you had to do. So it didn't matter how hard Yale was going to be, how, you know, brutal the critiques were, because I have had some brutal critiques or how brutal the studio visits are. It didn't matter, right? When it comes to, you know, your ambitions, your goals, your dreams, you just have to go through those things, right? Like that's just what you do. You take it on the chin and you just go, you put your head down, you make that work happen and you endure it, right? And one of the great things about going up, you know, poor in the hood that being in an Ivy League institution is not, like <laughs> your life could be a lot worse off, you know? So I kept that, in, you know, kept that with me as well. But I definitely, you know, expected it to be quite brutal. I expected it to be very difficult at times, exhausting. And I just knew that that was, you know, a necessary thing you had to do. You know, pain and like stress, all of that stuff is necessary for progress. You know, it's not going to be comfortable. At what point in your career did you decide you were going to lean more towards figurative versus abstract painting? So... Um, I still make abstract paintings, but and I was trained as a minimalist abstract painter. So um, if anyone was very familiar with my work early on, if you were to like Google, you know, a Dom Chambers painting in 2012 or 13, that painting probably had one color on it. Like that's all that painting was, right? And I was trained as a minimalist by minimalist painters. Like my professors at Flow Valley, a lot of them, you know, Eric Schultz and Linda Vaderveld, Michael Quintero were minimalists, you know. I mean, there was one professor I was close to who was a bit more of a maximalist, you know, Bob Langness. And, you know, I don't know. I just found myself very attracted to, like, the history of abstraction. I found it to be so beautiful, you know. You know, I'm being long-winded right now. But I did a fellowship with um, Yale in 2015 called Yale Norfolk. And I applied to that residency um, while I was an undergrad at Myad. And I applied with a minimalist abstraction painting portfolio, and I entered into Norfolk talking about these things around Black experiences, uh, my identity, and all of these, you know, kind of paint by numbers things that when you're a pure Black kid, like, you find that to be meaningful to talk about, you know, in your work. And the professor's like, well, how the hell are you talking about these things? But what I'm looking at is a teal painting, and that's it. Like, there's nothing else on it. 
that could lead me to where you want to be. And so once I had that critique and I understood that, because I thought I took so much pride in not being a figurative painter at that moment, but when it came to the ideas and the things I was interested in, being a figurative painter made the most sense for addressing these um, things that I felt to be important, right? But even to this day, I mean, like I'm 27 now, and I still don't really consider myself like a true figurative painter. Like I think of myself as someone who paints conditions, you know, beyond anything else. And so when you're looking at the figures in any of my paintings, the conditions are what you know, dictates the way that figure is presented. So if you're looking at a Joseph Albers painting, well, you're looking at a painting that's divided with two colors taken from a Joseph Albers palette, or you're looking at a, a 60 by 60 square that utilizes Joseph Albers homage to the square format. And it's overlaid onto the bodies of the figures in those paintings. And some would ask, well, why is that? Because that is the social and political um, condition that we all are living under, you know, like his works are about perception. And so it's a visual metaphor. And so those are things I think about first and foremost, even when I am like, hey, I wanna show an image of a black body in moments of leisure or in contemplation, but what conditions will that figure be in? Like what conditions will dictate that leisure, right? Will they be at home? Will they be on their couch? Will they be in the chair? What environments around them? You know, what, how, what tones or shapes or colors or hues will lead you know, to a more rigorous engagement with that painting, right? So you have to start thinking about the conditions in which you know, bodies are seen. And that could be a bit of an abstraction, you know? but it seems necessary for, um, I mean, having the discussions or the conversations that I think are important. Totally agree. You and I had a conversation and you mentioned that you feel that words have meaning. Mm -hmm. And I know you're fond of W.E. Both. Can you comment on how that influences your narrative? Yeah. Oh, man. So I love words. I love people who are, you know, who use colorful language. I love verbally dexterous people. Um, I just, I find it to be so engaging how people utilize language. It can be incredibly poetic. It can be sometimes admonishing, you know, depending on your tone, if you're being harsh. And then even when someone's like, you know, cussing you out, the way in which they cuss you out could be quite interesting, right? In how they structure their cuss words. Like my family members and also in the black community, you know, we have a way of utilizing words and language in such a fascinating way. And as a reader, you know, I'm constantly engaging with um, sentence structures by different authors, right? Like, you know, Jericho Brown structures his poems quite differently than Emily Dickinson, right? And I find that to be so exciting. And words do have meaning, right? And because if you're not familiar with you know, words or how to utilize language, you never really can advance your position in life. You know? And one of the reasons I think it's important to understand the way language works, the way people speak to you, the way words are used is by reading first, right? And the reason for that is if books are structured around you know, withholding information, that's why things like foreshadowing exist. You might read the first couple of chapters of a, of a book and you might not get, you know, the full picture until, you know, near the end. And that's useful because if you're entering into a conversation with someone, whether it be a business deal or um, you're with your bank, your accountant or someone's trying to sell you something, you're in tune with what they are not telling you. Right. They are deliberately leaving things out. Right. 
And you become sensitive to that because you're used to how um, authors and writers leave things out also. And so I'm always asking someone, huh, well, what does that mean? Well, what do you mean by that? Because it looks like you're withholding information, right? But it's like if you had a, um, like a husband, like if your husband was out late and he's like, oh, I'm going to go um, work in the office late. And you're like, well, what is late? You know, how long is late really? You know, because they leave those things open-ended, hoping that you would never ask about it. But you know damn well, he's probably up to something foolish. Right. So that's why you ask those things. You're like, no, he's not telling me everything. Like he's purposely withholding language, you know? And I think like, you know, that is so engaging to me. I think that's so cool. Right. If you're aware of it, you know, I think if you're aware of it, I think it can be quite beautiful. Yeah. I love words. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Start reading literature after spending a lot of many years, too many years on, on wall street. And every now and then I, I jokingly say that I went from, you know, one and two syllable words like "fuck you," to yeah. <laughs> you know three and four syllable words, and it was you know I, I just got so um, mesmerized, or um, I should say, enchanted by some of the the books I was reading and some of the authors. But, yeah, and uh, it's like, and that's why I loved, and I love that you brought up Du Bois because you know one of the things that I loved about Du Bois is that he gave a word to an experience that I felt like I was having but didn't have the words for, right? Like so often what happens um, in the hood, like when you have kids like acting out or lashing out or, you know, having immense anxiety. And now if you understood how words work, that shit is called trauma. Like if you're like, okay, I have words for this. Like that's called trauma or PTSD. Like they can give you words to explain the conditions that you're, you know, that you're feeling. Like if you're feeling a certain kind of thing, but you have no language for expressing what it is that you feel, you get frustrated, right? You probably are fighting more. You're lashing out because you can't articulate what you're feeling, right? And I mean, I felt that in relationships. You know, you're in the middle of a relationship and you're arguing with your partner and things are getting out of control, not only because your emotions are heightened, but because they can't pinpoint how they've been hurt, you know, exactly with the words, especially when you're in that moment, right? right. And so with the boys, he understood that like all black people know that the world sees them a certain way. We all do. Like you can't be black in this world and think that no one sees you in a particular way at some point in time. You understand that. But so many black people feel crazy. Like, you know, maybe we're making this up or maybe, you know, we don't have a way to prove that, you know, people are seeing us a certain way or assuming certain things. And the boys is like, no, like you live in what's called a veil. They are not going to experience you in the fullness of who you are because of this reason, right? And that offers so much. It's such a liberating thing to be able to name what you're feeling, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like, they are veiling me. They're veiling my body, right? They're limiting me. And now, you know, and once you understand what it is and once you can name it, you can move forward. And I think what Du Bois does is that he gives words and names to some of the most like absurd experiences that are part of black life, you know, and because of his words, we're able to make sense out of, you know, what's happening to us, you know, and what we're experiencing. And so I'm grateful to him for that. You also comment to me that you're a lover of music mm -hmm. and a I lot of music. your titles come from, from songs. They do. Um, yeah, I, I am obsessed with music. I think music is one of the most powerful and influential tools on this planet. You know, it can unite people together. People celebrate. They dance around music. I mean, it's really, really beautiful. You know, I oftentimes talk about um, how 
in the early 2000s and late 90s, there was a very particular kind of R&B. You know, you have someone like Joe or Maxwell or the Fugees, and they were all, you know, talking about, you know, a certain kind of experience when it came to um, romance or love or relationship or just being. And that is just not what's happening in my generation at all. Like, if we're talking about people like Frank Ocean or Kid Cudi or SZA or Drake, like, the lyric and the subject matter of my generation's music is so indicative of our kind of, like, our cultural zeitgeist. You know, so many millennials are afraid of trust and commitment. Like, we'd much rather buy a house with your ass before we get married. Like, we're so, we're so weird. And you hear that in the music. And so whenever I'm painting these images... I do. I have a lot of music playing with me. A lot of Frank Ocean. I listen to Blonde a lot. Um, I've been recently listening to Boss, and Boss has been uh, the kind of his music has been the um, thing I've been taking uh, titles from the most recently. And so when I look at my paintings and I read their titles, I can definitely pinpoint a time in my life, and I'm like, oh, that's when I was listening to a lot of Boss, and I was going through a lot of emotional distress. Or I was listening to Frank Ocean and everything was great and I was feeling good and I was going down Nostalgia Hill because of Frank's lyrics, right? And that's a huge thing for me. Like there are certain bodies of work that I want to um, make that are entirely inspired by, you know, my relationship to music and the lyrics and subject that um, music addresses and in a particular time, you know. So when you look back on some of your earlier work, does your brain immediately associate it with the song? It does. It does, man. It really does. Like if I look at, um, especially my first body of work that I came out of Yale making, the Primary Magic series, um, there's a painting there um, in that in that grouping called um, Dark Skin of a Summer Shade. And I absolutely love that painting. But it's taken from um, a Frank Ocean song called Pink and White. And the full lyrics are, in the wake of a hurricane, dark skin of a summer shade. And in that moment, he was talking about Hurricane Katrina because Frank was living for a moment in New Orleans. And I love that. You know, like in his mind, like he's reflecting on nostalgia and his own experiences and utilizing poetry and lyricism to convey these things, right? But in that moment, I was thinking about my own body, right? Like what is dark skin of a summer shade? What would that look like in painting? What, like, have I ever seen anyone that looks like that, you know? And more often than not, we do. And I like knowing that music can operate as a transformative tool because paintings do the same thing. Words, music, art, I love it all. This has been a great conversation. I'm smiling throughout. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate speaking with you, man. I love these questions. Not many people talk to me about music and my love for words. I think that's really important. You know, those conversations aren't had enough. Yeah, no, art and, and music, the two combined, it's, 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 uh, I definitely always list my spirits, that's for sure. Turn the TV off and the music on loud. Yes. Uh, I have a girlfriend and we were chatting and she said, do you still listen to music? I said, yes, because I haven't been listening to music lately. And I wow. said, well, you should, need to turn it on, you need to turn it on loud and you need to, as they say, dance like nobody's watching. I really think that's an important thing for for humans to do. So on that note, um, it's been great speaking with you. This is our last question. Share with us what you feel is the role of an artist. For me, 
I think the role of the artist is to help, um, you know, those around us. And I mean this for everyone. You know, we our role is to help people make sense out of the world around them, you know. And so too often, you know, you live on this planet and you live day to day and you experience life. And you might get your heart broken or you might feel a certain type of thing or you might feel melancholy or lethargic. And you feel like this may have been the first time you felt these things, right? Or that no one is understanding what you're feeling, right? Or you can't, you feel isolated. And then you read and then you learn that, no, there are plenty of people who have experienced what you have experienced, who have felt what you have felt and who have been there. And they have these books that help you make sense out of it, right? At that point, the book becomes an empathetic tool, right? The book is no longer an intellectual tool, but also an empathetic one that helps you understand. And as artists, our jobs with the things that we create is that we have a responsibility to our fellow men to help you know, make sense out of their experiences. You know, we point, we gesture, we stop. And when you're, you know, lost or you're experiencing, you know, being veiled, you're experiencing being, you know, marginalized, you go to a museum and you look at a painting and then you think about the history of that painting and you understand that this artist was wrestling with or at the very least concerned with some of the many of the issues that you're probably also in, um, negotiating yourself. And so as artists, we have to be incredibly in tune with the world around us and be sensitive to it and understand that we have to examine and reveal the deeper depths of the human condition. You know, not to get like philosophical and yelly, but I do think that that matters quite a bit. You know, like for some, an artist reflects the times and you can't do that if you're not in tune with the world around you. You're not, you can't reflect the times if you aren't in tune with the political atmosphere that you're, in, that you're living under, right? or the socio-political issues that are, you know, plaguing your countrymen. And so that, to me, is the role of the artist, to just be in tune. Well, I certainly appreciate the work that you all do. And I say it often, art will save us. So thank you so much. Save me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.